Welcome to Probing the Prophets with Rod MacArthur. Join us every Friday from 11 a.m. until 12 noon Central Standard Time for an exciting adventure through the prophets with Rod MacArthur. Rod MacArthur, husband, father, grandfather, gardener of roses and veggies, Bible student, enamored of the prophets since 1972, hosts a discussion 40 years in the making. Currently living in Auburn, Washington, Rod has preached in Moscow, Idaho, Spokane, Washington, and Terre Haute, Indiana, before moving to Auburn. Welcome to Probing the Prophets with Rod. Well, good morning from cold Auburn, Washington. So happy to have you with us this morning, and... Looking forward to a great discussion. We're going into Ezekiel 17, 18, and 19. Uh, next two weeks, we're going to cover chapters 20 through 24, uh, whether it's 2 and 3 or 2 and a half and 2 and a half or 3 and 2 will depend upon the material and actually how far we get today. Beginning in chapter 25, we have a series of prophecies concerning the surrounding nations. So 24, in in effect, brings to a, a conclusion this portion of Ezekiel's prophecies regarding Jerusalem and Judah and to the captives in, in Babylon. And then so in 25, we'll pick up the prophecies concerning the surrounding nations. You see, here's a truth that needs to be clearly understood. Whereas uh, the captives to whom Ezekiel was preaching. Remember, he was in he was in captivity with them. We're in the uh, latter years of King Zedekiah's reign, so we're, we're between the 597 um, surrender by Jehoiakim, at which time Zedekiah was set up as king, and the 586 uh, siege and breaching of Jerusalem's walls and burning of her temple, at which time. Zedekiah was uh, taken captive, actually killed, or blinded and then taken captive. His sons were killed. So we're in that period of time. <clears throat> the captives who had come, some of them uh, like Daniel in, in 606, some of them like Ezekiel in 597, and there were a few trickle uh, departure, de, um, deportations uh, at, at minor times in between these two major uh, dates. Uh, but the captives with Ezekiel were hoping, hoping for a soon release. They had their hopes pinned on King Zedekiah that he would be the one of uh, David's lineage who could rise uh, up or recover the, the nation and uh, restore the captives and restore the um, vessels that had been taken from the temple. That's what their hope was. So keeping that in perspective, Ezekiel is speaking to those people, but at the end of chapter 24, then beginning with 25, he starts preaching to the surrounding nations. The point I was driving at is this. The sweep through of the Babylonian army, which would which would finally destroy Jerusalem's temple, that sweep-through was not a laser strike against Jerusalem. It was a shotgun blast through the entire um, Mediterranean coast. It would take uh, all the nations that were surrounding Jerusalem. It, it, it was, the Babylonian army was sweeping all the way down to Egypt. And so all in its path would be taken away. That's what we'll get to in chapters uh, 25 and following. But today... We have uh, a parable, a proverb, and a lamentation. Chapter 17 is a parable of uh, great eagles and a cedar tree. Chapter 18 is a proverb regarding sour grapes. And chapter 19 is a lamentation 
over the, those poor little lion cubs. We'll talk about those as we come to It may be <clears throat> that you'd like to contact me. I'll try to remember to give this also at the end of our program. But anybody who wishes to contact me is welcome to do so. My email address is rod underscore MacArthur. That's R-O-D underscore M-A-C-A-R-T-H-U-R, all one string, at Comcast.net. Drop me a line. I'd be glad to visit with you. Uh, Maybe that you'd like to uh, help with the funding of this program or my ministry in general. And you can drop me a line and we can talk about how to go about doing that. Love to hear from you. But today, let's get right into Ezekiel chapter 17 and talk about a parable to the house of Israel, which he says there in verse 2. This kind of reminds me of uh, Matthew 13, verses uh, 10 uh, through 14, when uh, Jesus' disciples came up to him and said, Why do you speak to them, that is, to the nation of Israel, in parables? Well, Jesus was not the first to do so. God has always spoken through parables. Uh, Hosea was a book of parables, as here also is Ezekiel. Why do you speak to them in parables? Jesus' answer was, I want to I make a separation between those who really want to hear what God is saying and those who don't. Have eyes to hear, and uh, eyes to see, and ears to hear. And if they don't have eyes to see and ears to hear, they're going to count it off as foolishness and fulfill the prophecy in Isaiah 6. That's what Jesus said in Matthew 13, 10 through 14. But here's the parable. It starts with a great eagle there in verse 3, who came uh, to a tree, um, uh, came to Lebanon. Came to Lebanon. Now, Lebanon was noted for its lofty cedars. But he's not talking about the forest. He's not talking about the the, the uh, country of Lebanon. He's talking about the, the the king's palace in Jerusalem. In First Kings seven verse two, Solomon built the house of the forest of Lebanon. He built uh, he built uh, the temple. He built his own dwelling place, and he built the house of the forest of Lebanon. This would be the house of state, the the, the palace where. Uh, the the king of Israel would rule and reign from where visiting kings and, and dignitaries would visit. So uh, th- this phrase Lebanon, the house of the forest of Lebanon, or just Lebanon, is a reference to the king's palace in Jerusalem. All right. So this great eagle came to this tree, that's picking up the imagery of the parable, and took away the top of the cedar, just plucked off the top. Well, it's the top of the tree. The top of the of, of of the palace would be, of course, the king. But he also took away uh, the topmost of its young twigs. That that might be uh, uh, the those who were standing in line to be king, or the princes, uh, those of of nobility. If we're interpreting this uh, as we go along, then in verse six, <clears throat> he um, took. Uh, some of the seed of the land and planted it in a fertile soil. So he took some, he took the topmost uh, bough, he took the upper sprigs, and he took some of the seed of the land, took them over uh, to a city of traders and merchants and planted them in fertile soil. And it sprouted and became a low-spreading vine with branches toward him, but its roots remained under it. So it was being watered by the land, now, I want you to understand that the, de- the deportation of Israel, or Judah, from its land to the land of Babylon was by God's hand. And so, if they're planted there, like we studied recently in the book of uh, Jeremiah, he says, you're going to be here 70 years, set down roots, build houses, raise families, uh, raise sons and daughters, give them in marriage, plant your vineyards, settle in. Become rooted, in other words. And so they did. And this is a picture then. Branches toward him, but its roots uh, remained under it. A a, a picture of tribute while remaining on its land. But then the second picture uh, is a great eagle. Another great eagle. 
Now, I, I want to go back and comment one more thought on this idea of being planted on the, on the land. King Nebuchadnezzar, and, and we'll see that that's who this is talking about, this first great eagle is King Nebuchadnezzar, allowed Israel to stay on the land. I mean, it's obvious. He took some of them captive with him over to Babylon, and they were to settle in there and contribute to the economy there. But it's clear that if you've got this land that's occupied by nobody, this land becomes a non-source of tribute. So if you've got the people staying there, rooted there, they can then be year by year bringing tribute from the produce of the land. And that's this branches toward him. He could pluck the fruit off this tree. But then there was another great eagle. which uh, And so this vine now that has been established, uh, not a lofty cedar anymore, now it's a vine, bent its roots and sent out its branches toward this second great eagle. So now we have in this picture, here in verse 7, we have a double betrayal. There was a promise made to the first great eagle of tribute. There was a promise made uh, on the name of Yahweh to be faithful to him. There was a reliance that should have been on Yahweh for their protection and provision. And there was a tribute that was expected to go to the king of, the well, the first great eagle. Here now we see that the vine is no longer rooted in Yahweh. It's sending its roots toward this second eagle. And it's no longer bringing tribute to the first great eagle. It's taking it to the second great eagle. So it's a double betrayal going on there in verse 7. And Yahweh says in verse 9, will it thrive? Is this going to last? Uh, A comment I made to myself is, can anyone prosper going against their word to any man or to God? Israel, Judah made a promise to, to Nebuchadnezzar, and they made a promise on the name of God to Nebuchadnezzar, as we'll see in a minute. Can anybody thrive when they violate their promises to a man, or especially to God? And that, uh, obviously, it's a rhetorical question, demanding the answer of no. You, you're not going to thrive when you do those kind of things. Will he not pull it up by its roots? That is, will not the first eagle pull it up by his roots. Well, you understand that this first eagle, which we'll see in a minute, is Babylon, was God's agent. Just like in Isaiah 10, uh, Assyria was God's agent to take the axe and cut down Israel. And so uh, he will pull it up as by its roots, but he will do it, Nebuchadnezzar will do that as God's agent in doing so. In verse 10, Behold, though it is planted, will it thrive? Redundant question. Will it not completely wither as soon as the east wind strikes it? So rather than pinning their hopes on Zedekiah, the the, the whatever sprig was left in, in control there of this low-spreading vine uh, to rally the troops and defend them against Babylon, as soon as Babylon blew on them, the whole thing would wither. That's what God is saying. And the east wind here is, in fact, uh, the the coming of the Babylonian horde. So, um, verse 11, then, so 1 through 10 is the parable. Verse 11, say now to the rebellious house, do you not know what these things mean? I mean, this kind of reminds us again of of um, Matthew thirteen uh, ten through fourteen, which we referenced earlier, where the why do you speak to them in parables? Because they don't have ears to hear, and so Ezekiel put forth this parable, and God says, "Don't you know what this means?" It's like, duh. Uh, to, to to God, it was obvious, even as to us as we read through it. But apparently, to them, they couldn't, they didn't get it, and so He says, "I'm going to tell you what they mean." It says, the king of Babylon, that's that first great eagle, came to Jerusalem, took its king and princes. That's the topmost sprig and the, uh, uh, the, the top of the cedar and the, upper, and the topmost sprigs, the king and his princes. Brought them with him to Babylon. And that would be the, uh, <clears throat> the, the land of uh, merchants and city of traders there in verse 4. And then he says, he took one of the royal family, that would be one of the, verse 4, one of its top young top twigs, took him, we'll see that's Zedekiah, took him and put him under oath. 
and there there would be the planting of him in the fertile soil. So I planted you, now you're king now, and put him under oath. He also took away the mighty of the land, which accounts for it being a lowly, uh, low-spreading vine instead of this stately cedar anymore. And then, but he rebelled, verse 15, he rebelled against him and sent envoys to Egypt. So that Egypt is the second great eagle. And how, here these envoys are both seeking support and paying tribute. So here's the, uh, the, the, the two things that we saw, the, the double betrayal. Seeking support, that's a betrayal of Yahweh himself, and bringing tribute to the king of Egypt rather than to the king of Babylon. Now, So God says here in verse 15, can he indeed break the covenant? Now, <clears throat> he, he asked the questions before that. Will he succeed? That's the same question he raised earlier of will it thrive up in verse 9. So you see the mapping of, of this explanation on the two paragraphs preceding it. But now watch this question here, end of 15. Can he indeed break the covenant and escape? We're going to talk about breaking the covenant, and we'll see that actually there was a covenant made with King Babylon, and there was a covenant made on Yahweh's name. So it's a covenant with both. Can he break that covenant and escape? Well, the question, it's a rhetorical question. It means obviously no. Surely in the country of the king who put him on the throne, whose oath he despised, whose covenant he broke, in Babylon he will die. Not just reference you here, we'll not go back and read it, but reference you here to um, Ezekiel 12, verse 13. That's the chapter in which we saw Ezekiel digging through the wall and, and digging through a hole and going out at night with his eyes covered and... Um, the picture was that the, the king of Babylon would try to, or the king of Ju Judah would try to escape, Zedekiah, through a hole in the wall, but he would be caught, his sons would be killed in front of his eyes, he would be blinded and taken to the land of Babylon and where, where he would die. So that's Ezekiel 12, verse 13. Here in Babylon, he'll die. So we, we've got this matching up of, of warning that Zedekiah is not going to be your hero. He's going to, because he broke his promise, to the king of Babylon, uh, he broke a promise he made on the name of Yahweh. He's going to Babylon, and he's going to die there. He's not going to deliver you from Babylon, but he's coming over to Babylon to die with you in Babylon. Now, <clears throat> down in verse 19, As I live, surely my oath which he despised and my covenant which he broke, I will inflict on his head. Now, in verse 16, he broke the covenant with Nebuchadnezzar. In verse 19, he broke Yahweh's covenant. The fact of the case is, in Second Chronicles 36, verse 13, we'll read that, that Nebuchadnezzar made Zedekiah swear on the name of Yahweh that he would remain faithful to uh, Nebuchadnezzar. So it was a covenant between Zedekiah and Nebuchadnezzar that was sworn on the name of Yahweh. So that, there's where we get this double violation. In fact, he says, his unfaithful acts, which he has committed against me, there at the end of verse 20. Everybody's going to die. There will be no, the survivors will be scattered. He will not succeed. And look, look at the last phrase of verse 21. You will know that I, Yahweh, have spoken. So we have this constant theme through the book of uh, Ezekiel that God is going to vindicate his name and people are going to know that he's the one doing the acting in all these things. All right, now, the picture is of the plucking away of the kings of Judah, the topmost branch, the uppermost sprigs, the lowland that was planted that also taken away. The picture is a... a total uh, debasing of the house of David in Judah, uh, bringing it down to where it's a low-lying branch, or, or low-lying vine, and even that is taken off into captivity. Uh, and so we've got to have some sense 
of restoration. In, in fact, and we're going to come back to that theme that I just mentioned, the debasing of the house of David, uh, when we get to, say, chapter uh, 19. But right here, I just want to look at this final paragraph here in 17, is a paragraph of restoration. Now, thus says the Lord Yahweh, I also will take from the lofty top of the cedar and set out. Now, Nebuchadnezzar did it, and it turned into a, a, just a low-spreading vine. What happens if Yahweh does it? What happens if Yahweh comes and takes a sprig and plants it? He says, I'll plant it on a high and lofty mountain. There in end of verse 22. That means Mount Zion, of course. Mount Zion. On the height of a high mountain of Israel, I will plant it that it may bring forth boughs and bear fruit and become a stately cedar. So Nebuchadnezzar took from the top of this tree and it became a low-spreading vine. Yahweh took, uh, and, and this would would be probably very similar to Isaiah's, uh, the shoot that sprang from the root of Jesse when the tree was cut down, a, a shoot sprang, and it became this uh, tree that just was, um, well, here we'll see the tree is, fills the earth. Um, Yahweh, the point I'm making is that Yahweh did a whole lot better job of planting a king for Judah than Nebuchadnezzar ever did. Um, it, it will be on a high and lofty mountain. It says in, in verse 23, And birds of every kind will nest under it. They will nest in the shade of its branches. Birds of every kind, of course, would be a reference to all the nations. Um, nesting in the shade of its branches kind of makes us think of uh, of Daniel 4, verse 12, where Daniel told Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree in which all the birds of heaven find their shade and find their rest and find their provision. So this picture of the Nebuchadnezzar and the empire of Babylon being a, a tree that sheltered and provided for all the populace around, that's the picture that Ezekiel is painting for the sprig that Yahweh would plant from the house of David, that it will, on this high and lofty mountain would become a, a, a majestic cedar uh, for birds of every kind to find shade in its branches. He says in 24, all the trees of the field will know that I am Yahweh. So here's this, uh, I am Yahweh, David, but now it's not just you will know that I am Yahweh, it's all the trees of the field. The trees... Uh, as we've seen here, is, is the, the, imp, the 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 empire or the the uh, empire that's headed by the king, representing perhaps the the, the various nations, the the kings of those nations, even the uh, the uh, the sovereigns of these surrounding nations and empires. They will all know that I am Yahweh when I take the sprig and plant it, Babylon. The kingdom of kingdoms, the head of gold, according to Daniel, took a sprig and planted it, and it just became just a little low-lying vine. Yahweh took a sprig and planted it. It became a cedar, majestic cedar, that gave shade and protection to all the birds of heaven and amazed all the kings of earth. So, he says, I bring down the high tree, exalt the low tree, dry up the green tree, and make the dry tree flourish. Uh, I looked at that and, and I saw two sets of parallels. There is, first of all, there is the high tree and the uh, green tree, the, that which is living and flourishing. He says, I bring that one down. How Israel should view their masters, the, the uh, Babylonian Empire, the Medo-Persian Empire, the Roman Empire. Those who dominated them look like the powerful tree under which God says, I bring them down. I bring them down. But then there's exalt the low tree and make the dry tree flourish. Well, we already seen in this parable that Israel or Judah herself was the low tree and uprooted from her land the dry tree. God says, I can make you flourish. So how Israel should view their future hope. These trees that are dominating you, I can bring it down, bring them down. And you, I can plant you on a high and lofty mountain and cause you to flourish. 
That's how Israel should view their hope. Not pin their hope to Zedekiah, but pin their hope to the future and Yahweh working in and through them. Watch what he says. I have spoken and I will perform. I, I don't know of any more comforting words in the world than that, do you? I told you what I'm going to do. I'm going to do it. I made you a promise. I'm going to keep it. You can trust everything I say because I keep my word. Can you think of anything more comforting than that thought right there? That what Yahweh said he would do for you, you can put it in the book. It's already done. Uh, I will perform it. I, I just love that. I guess I've said that several times. It's so impressive to me. But it is comforting. That brings us now then to chapter 18 in which we have the proverb. And it starts, God is really kind of ticked off here. What do you mean using this proverb concerning the land of Israel? Well, what proverb? The fathers eat sour grapes, but the children's teeth are set on edge. What in the world does he mean by that? Our fathers did the wrong and we're suffering for it. That's what they're saying. It's not our fault. This invasion and collapse of the temple, it's not our fault. Our fathers did it, and we're just bearing the penalty of their choices. So, <clears throat> Ezekiel does two things in this chapter. The first one is, he demonstrates the faithfulness of God in dealing with an individual according to the individual's righteousness. He starts off and says, you're not going to use this anymore. Well, actually, in verse 3, as I live. This is Yahweh taking an oath on himself. As I live. Well, well I might say, as God lives. Or uh, by the living God. I promise to do this. It's an oath. Well, God swears, as I live. He swears, <clears throat> he swears by himself. Well, what does he swear? You're not going to use this proverb anymore. I'm, I'm, going to, I'm going to take this proverb out of your lips. Now, there's only one way he's really going to take it out of their lips. He's going to educate them, but he's going to have to spank them. It's kind of like the rod plus reproof gives wisdom, according to the book of Proverbs. Well, I'm going to reprove you. I'm going to tell you how, it ought, how you ought to look at it, and then I'm going to spank you. I'm going to bring your nation down to the ground, and you're going to see that you are suffering the consequences of your own choices, not blaming it on your fathers anymore. He says, and for all souls are mine. I have the divine right to punish whomever I choose to punish. And so he says to the soul, the sins will die. It's not, you're going to die because your father sinned. You're going to die because you sinned. Now, I don't think Ezekiel is talking here about the idea of whose uh, sin is it that God holds me accountable for as an eternal punishment. He's talking here about Jerusalem's about to be destroyed and the people are blaming their fathers for it. And God says, no, if you sin, you die. Uh, if I spare you from uh, death here at the, at the hand of the Babylonians, it's because I see you as a righteous person I want to, I want to preserve. If, if you die, it's because you're a sinner. That's the death he's talking about here uh, in this chapter. So he starts off. If a man is righteous, now, if a man is righteous, watch the next, and practices justice and righteousness. A righteous man is a practicer of justice and righteousness. <clears throat> you, you might say it's not just an attitude, it's actions. Justice and righteousness are seen in your actions. They obviously stem from the attitudes. I want to do right. I want to be right. I want to do justice. I want to be just. Uh, uh, but to have that concept is fruitless unless it is seen in action. And that's what he says. He practices justice and righteousness. Uh, <clears throat> read this. Does not eat at the mountain shrines or lift up his eyes to the idols of the house of Israel. That's kind of impressive to me. The idols of the house of Israel. Or defile his neighbor's wife or approach a woman during her menstrual period. If a man does not oppress anyone, but restores to the debtor his pledge, does not commit robbery, gives his bread to the hungry, and covers the naked with clothing. Uh, that, that one right there reminds me of Ephesians 4, where Paul says, Let him who stole, 
steal no longer, rather let him labor, working with his hands what is good, so that he might have to give to those who have need. So instead of stealing, he works, but he doesn't just work to have for himself, he works to have for others. Here we see the same thing. He doesn't commit robbery, but gives his bread and covers the naked with clothing. If he does not lend on interest or take increase, he keeps his hand from iniquity, executes true justice between man and man, walks, I, I, I think what uh, David said in the Psalms, who can live in your holy hill, the one who swears to his own hurt and doesn't change. He makes a promise, he executes true justice, even though it might be to his detriment. He walks in my statutes and my ordinances so as to deal faithful. He's righteous, he'll live. I, I, this, this section is amazing in that it gives us Yahweh's description of a righteous life. He, he didn't mention a lot of church-going and piety here, though I think those are valuable from the standpoint of, of stimulating each other to love and good works, to um, building each other up and holding each other accountable. But righteousness in God's eyes is a very practical lifestyle of, of good and honesty and integrity and, and be benevolence. That's what it means in Yahweh's eyes to be a righteous and just man. All right, that's a kind of a side note, but it's a valuable one here from the book of, of Ezekiel. Now look what he says. Then, this very righteous man may have a violent son. Now, if if the people's attitude, the father ate sour grapes, the children's teeth are set on edge, i.e., we're paying the penalty for their misdeeds. Well, if that... If that's good, then can't we reverse it? Our fathers were righteous. That's why we're having such a good life. Ezekiel comes on and says, Now, the right, this righteous man who lives because of his righteousness, he might have a violent son who sheds blood and doesn't do any of these things. He, he just reverses all of what we just read. He will surely be put to death there at the end of verse 13. His blood will be on his own head. He can't blame his father for his death. His father was a good man, and yet he died because of his sins. Well, if if we can take the sour grapes and set my teeth on edge, my dad ate sour grapes, my teeth are set on What if my dad ate good grapes? Does my mouth water? No. See, what dad did, dad paid the price for. What I do, I paid the price for. That's what Ezekiel is getting at. Now, here's this wicked man, this violent man, the son of the righteous man, had... The righteous man had a violent son. Now the violent son, he has a son. Now his son observes all that his father has done and observing determines not to do likewise. So I'm not going to live like that. And so he turns his life to, to Yahweh and lives a good life. Look what he says here in verse 17. He will not die for his father's iniquity. He will surely live. So Ezekiel's taken both scenarios. The righteous man who lives because of his righteousness has a wicked son who dies because of his wickedness, but that wicked son has a son who's a righteous man. He will not die because of his father's wickedness. He will live because of his own righteousness. You say, here, verse uh, 19, you say, why should the son not bear? So that you, you get this, this is their attitude. Well, the son ought to bear that. And so Ezekiel is very, very dramatic and emphatic in verse 20. The person who sins will die. The son will not bear the punishment for the father's iniquity, nor will the father bear the punishment for the son's iniquity. The righteousness of the righteous will be upon him, and the wickedness of the wicked will be upon him. And that's how God parses it out. You live a righteous life, God recognizes that, no matter what your father did. You live a wicked life, God recognizes that, no matter what your father did. Holds you personally accountable, not, um, how should we say, um, familiarly accountable, not accountable for what your family did, but just for what you did. Now, so that answers the proverb. But it doesn't answer the need. The need is, the people are perishing. They're blaming it on the actions of their fathers. But the reality is, they're perishing for their own bad 
actions and attitudes. And so there's still a need to say, okay, the proverb is wrong, the premise is wrong, but you're wrong, so you need to repent. So look what he says here in verse 21. If the wicked man turns. Say, this is Ezekiel's call for repentance. If the wicked man turns. And turns from his sins, observes my statutes, and practices justice and righteousness. So he, he turns away from his wicked way and starts doing it my way. What do you call that? Well, the turn is the attitude of the mind toward what you're doing and toward what you wanted. That's repentance, changing the mind. But it, he also showed a changing of the action. You turn and you practice. All right? He'll not die. He'll not die. All his transgressions, which he has committed, will not be remembered against him. The beauty, the beauty of Christianity, the, the beauty of walking with God, is that God allows me to forsake all the trash that I've done to follow him. And it's like it's a trash dump. It's gone. I turn my heart to him. I do my life his way. I seek genuine forgiveness from him. It's gone. It says all his transgressions, will not, which he committed, will not be remembered against him. Do I have pleasure in the death of the wicked? Well, what if God worked on the balance plan? In other words, here's a man who lives 70 years. The first 50 of it, he lives a life of, of self-indulgence and trash. He's got 20 years left. Somewhere in his 50th year, he turns to God. He's only got 20 years left to make up for 50 years of garbage living. Might not be possible. You see some people motivated. I gotta, I've got to atone for what I did. Hey, stop. Jesus' blood atoned for everything you did. God just wipes it away. He doesn't work on the balance system where I have to counterbalance all my bad with enough good to make it look where the good is it outweighs the bad. That's not the way it works with God. And it doesn't work that way the other way either. Look here in verse um 24, but when a righteous man turns away from his righteousness, now maybe he's been righteous for 50 years. He's got 70 years to live. And in the last 20 years, he lives a debauched life. Probably the 50 years of good will outweigh the 20 years of bad as far as uh, amount of good he's done, amount of bad he's done. <clears throat> he's going to die because he's turned away from his righteousness. He's not going to live. He says, all his righteous deeds, I'm reading in verse 24, which he has done will not be remembered for his treachery, which he has committed, and his sin which he has committed. For them he will die. He said, that's not right. That's not the way. The way of Yahweh isn't right. That's not fair. I've been good, 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 and I do one bad, and I turn from all my good and start living bad. And it's, not just, it's just not fair. I've got all this good stored up, and why, why doesn't that outweigh? That's not the way it is with God. God wants your heart, not this accumulation of goods. You turn your heart away from him, you're not his. No matter how good you've been, you turn your heart away from him, you're not his. No matter how bad you've been, you turn your heart to him, you're his. That's the way God says, that's not fair. That's Yahweh. He says, is, is it my way that isn't right? It's your way that isn't right. It's your way that tries to build up uh, this stockpile of good rather than this heart of devotion. I want a heart of devotion. Um, now, think about this. Is, is my way not right? Is it not your ways that are not right? How many times are you going to win that challenge? I think my way is better than God's way. Every single time, you're going to lose. We're never going to win the challenge of saying, I know more about this than God does. My way of doing it is better than God's. I think it ought to be done this way. You've got to lose that challenge every single time. And so in verse 28, he says, because, because he considered. This is, this is critical. Because he considered. This is that wicked man that somewhere late in life, or somewhere in his life, turns from his wickedness and starts living God's way. And he does that because he considered 
and turned away from all his transgressions which he had committed, he shall surely live, he shall not die. This again is Ezekiel's call for repentance. Here's how you do it. You think about what you're doing. That <clears throat> that reminds us of what uh, e Ezekiel said back in chapter um, 9, is it? No, it's chapter... Um, boy, I didn't, didn't look this one up. Sorry. Um... Yeah, chapter 6, verse 9. Then those of you who escape will remember me among the nations of which they, to which they will be carried captive, how I have been hurt by their adulterous hearts, which turned away from me, and by their eyes, which played harlot after their idols, and they will loathe themselves in their own sight for the evils which they have committed, for all their abominations. That's the process of considering. He considered Look what I've done. And he turned away from it. That man shall live. Therefore, he says in verse 30, I will judge you, O house of Israel, each one according to his conduct. This is going back again and answering that proverb. You're going to be judged according to your conduct. You won't be judged according to your father's conduct, but yours. But I'm promising you, if you're wicked right now and you turn to me, you're going to live. So you see, I don't take any pleasure in your death. But you'll be judged according to how you conduct yourself. Repent and turn away is his very next thing. Cast away all from you all your transgressions, verse 31, and make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. For I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies, declares the Lord Yahweh. Therefore, repent and live. Now, I'd like uh, take first of all, take note of the uh, process here. He says repent up in verse 30. Repent is a change of attitude. Turn away from all your transgressions so that the iniquity doesn't become a stumbling block to you. Turning away is no longer living in that, no longer pursuing that. He says cast away from you all your transgressions. Utter repudiation. Shedding it like a snake sheds its skin. Getting rid of it. Getting it out of your life. And make for yourself a new heart. That's the reforming of godly attitudes. Compare that to what Paul said. And we're going to talk about this idea of making a new heart. Because wasn't it God who said, I will make for them a new heart? Here in E. But first of all, I want to share with you what Paul said in Ephesians 4. He says, but you did not, verse 20, you did not learn Christ in this way, that is to just go on living a, a, a debauched life. If indeed you have heard him and have been taught in him, just as truth is in Jesus, that in reference to your former manner of life, you lay aside the old self. See, isn't that the putting off, casting away? We, we see here that Ezekiel talks about. Put aside the old self, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lust of deceit, and that you be renewed in the spirit of your mind. That's the rethinking, the repenting. Renewed in the spirit of your mind. Changing your mind is literally what repentance means. And put on the new self, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. So here's a, a new self that I'm required to put on, but it's a new self that's made in the image of God. So here we've got this double thing going on. He says, you make for yourself a new spirit, a new heart and a new spirit. But in, in, in Ezekiel 11, at verse 19, Ezekiel 11, 19, here's what God says. I will give them one heart and shall put a new spirit within them. I shall take the heart of stone out of their flesh and give them heart of flesh. So who's doing it? Is God doing it? Or, or, or is I mean, Ezekiel here saying, you do it. You make for yourself a new heart and a new spirit. But 11.19 says, I'll give them one heart and a new spirit. And I, I think it's man and God working together in the uh, transformation of man. That <clears throat> God is taking man through education. He's teaching. He's preaching. He's pleading. He's showing his love. He's bringing man into difficult situations where man will consider. See, up in verse uh, 28, because he considered. 
he he will consider what's going on. So God is forming man by his word, by his patience, by his love, by his circumstances. Man makes a choice whether to soften and take God's way into his heart or stiffen and just leave his own way in there. So it's man and God working together. God doesn't uh, overpower man and make him be what he doesn't want to be. He, um, as, as uh, Hosea said, I will take her into the wilderness and I, and I will speak softly. I will entice her, entice her, and persuade her, and plead with her. God draws us through love and gives us the opportunity to want to be there. After all, the psalmist, David in Psalm 110 says, your people volunteer in the day of your wrath. It's a, it's a voluntary thing. It's not a, um, it's imposed upon me and I can't resist it. It's a voluntary thing. God and man working together to develop and prepare that pure, clean, new heart. Therefore, he says, I have no pleasure in the death of anyone who dies. Therefore, repent and live. This is God's offer. Change your mind. I will spare your life. Change your mind and you can live with me. Now, please bear in mind that chapter 17 showed more than just a national restoration in their future that is just restored back to their land. Chapter 17 showed a grandeur in which all the nations were in subjection to and in awe of and recognizing the Yahweh work of this tree that was going to come from the house of David. There is more than just sparing your life through the Babylonian captivity that God is speaking of here. The one is the type of the other. The man who yields his heart to God and lives God's way, that man will live because of this tree that uh, chapter 17 talked about. Ezekiel doesn't go into all those details, but we can we can bring them back into the text of Ezekiel from the finishing of the story as we see it in the uh, in the New Covenant. That brings us here then to chapter twenty, the lamentation. A lamentation uh, uh, obviously is a death uh, dirge, a death song, a lamenting, a mourning over something that's been lost. All right, what's been lost? Well, we're going to see two, um, well, three. Let me say it this way. We three kings aren't, okay? <laughs> we three kings aren't. Josiah, the last righteous king of Judah, had three um, sons who, were, who became kings. Uh, one was deported by um, the Egyptians, shortly after Josiah's death, um, Judah made Jehoahaz king. The Pharaoh didn't care for Jehoahaz as king, so took him on down to Egypt and set up his brother Eliakim as king in his place and changed his name to Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim <clears throat> lived in rebellion um, shortly after that Nebuchadnezzar came through and <laughs> Egypt ceased being the puppeteer of Judah, and Nebuchadnezzar became the puppeteer. Jehoiakim lived peacefully with, Jeho with Nebuchadnezzar for a few years and then rebelled, quit paying uh, tribute, and so a siege was brought. Uh, Jehoiakim died before the siege was completed. He gave the kingdom over to his son Jehoiakim. He reigned as king for about three months and surrendered. That would be in 597. Uh, then his uncle, Josiah's third son, uh, Mataniah, became king or be was appointed by Nebuchadnezzar as king and changed his name to Zedekiah. So we three kings aren't. Uh, Jehoahaz, uh, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and then Zedekiah is what this lamentation is all about. So with that bit of background then, <clears throat> let's take uh, take a look here at Ezekiel 20. It says, for you, take up a lamentation for the princes of Israel. 
So we, we know the theme of the chapter. We're going to lament the princes of Israel. Let me remind us again of the situation to, of the people to whom Ezekiel is writing. He's not writing to the population of Jerusalem. He's writing to the deported ones in Babylon. Their hope was that in just a few years, Zedekiah, they're, 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 the one they've got their hopes pinned to now, Zedekiah, that he would rise up and somehow be able to throw off the Babylonian yoke and deliver <clears throat> both the people, <coughs> excuse me, <coughs> deliver both the people and the, the 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 vessels of the temple. What we're going to find in this chapter is that hope is wrong. This is all about divesting the captives from the hope of deliverance and bringing to the point of repentance, which is what the past chapter was about. Repent so you can live. This chapter is going to show the hope that you have is not going to stand. The previous chapter showed that too, chapter 17. So, let's read the lament. <clears throat> what was your mother, a lioness among lions? I don't know if he's talking here about the the uh, wife of, of Josiah. Probably not. Most likely he's referring to the nation as a whole. In Revelation 12, verses 1 and 2, we see this radiant woman, a uh, woman clothed with the sun, the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars, and she was with child, and she cried out being in labor and, and in pain to give birth. So here's a woman about to give birth. That's not Mary, though the child is Jesus. This is not Mary. This is the nation of Israel. More specifically, this is the faithful remnant of that nation, crowned with the twelve stars. Is that the twelve tribes, or is that the twelve apostles? And the answer is yes. The, and so the, the the point I'm making is we have the woman giving birth uh, to a, a, a king. And and that's the same picture we have here in Ezekiel, a woman giving birth to a king. In uh, Galatians 4, at verse 26, Paul says, um, comparing Jerusalem, he says, the Jerusalem above is free. And the ver previous verse, the Jerusalem from below is in bondage with her children, but the Jerusalem from above is free. She is our mother. So <clears throat> the nation as a whole, see, is seen as the mother of the individuals and here of, as the mother of the cubs, the lion cubs who become mighty princes. She was a lioness among lions. She lay down among young lions. She reared her cubs. When she brought up one of her cubs, he became a lion. That is, he became king. This is probably talking about Jehoahaz, uh, Josiah's first son. He learned to tear prey. He devoured men. Then nations heard about him. He was captured in their pit, and they brought him with hooks to the land of Egypt. That's why I think it's Jehoahaz. He was the one that was taken down uh, to Egypt. Uh, <clears throat> he died there, never to return to his land. When she saw, that is, this lion mother... When she saw, um, oh, by the way, let me <clears throat> take him down to to Egypt again, Josiah's son Jehoahaz. You can read about this in 1 Kings 23. In fact, 1 Kings 23, the end of it, and chapter 24, is the historical background for what we're reading here. Okay? So, the lioness saw, she waited, her hope was lost, she took another of her cups, so... Oh no, let's take another of the cubs and make him a young lion. This is probably Jehoiakim. But as we suggested, Jehoiakim died, not because of the siege, but during the siege. And Jehoiakim, his son, became king in his place. Now it was Jehoiakim that was surrendered and was taken off to Babylon peaceably. So... <clears throat> Uh, we have the two of them kind of seen as one. The the father who became, uh, who died and his son reigned in his place. Then we're going to go, go back to the third son of Josiah here in a minute. So I'm taking, and I think Ezekiel does too, uh, the second son of Josiah's king was Jehoiakim. His son Jehoiakim is seen as the extension of his reign. All right? 
Uh, verse 6, and he walked among, about among the lions, and he became a young lion. He learned to tear prey, and he devoured men. He destroyed their fortified towers, and he laid waste their cities. And the land and its fullness was appalled at the sound of his roaring. Uh, you read about uh, Jehoiakim, uh, just how arrogant he was. You can read it in uh, Jeremiah, just how arrogant he was in, in his reign. Um, we'll not go there. Then nations set against him on every side from provinces. Here would be Babylon with the, all the provinces and, and kings that joined him, which, by the way, is very similar to what we read in the book of, of, of Revelation, that the beast had the ten kings, um, and they gave their power to the beast to attack the, the holy city, or the, to attack the great city, which uh, I'm convinced is Jerusalem. Uh, so here... The, the, the emperor with the, the uh, surrounding um, uh, provinces um, joined him in attacking Jerusalem. And, and so the Roman Empire with the kings of the surrounding provinces attacked Jerusalem, parallel on every side. Okay, <clears throat> they spread their net over him. They ca he was captured in their net, verse 9. They put him in a cage with hooks and brought him to Babylon. See, Jehoiakim died... Uh, during the siege, he was re replaced by Jehoiakim, his son, who surrendered after three months uh, in 597. You read about that in 2 Kings 24, verse 12. <clears throat> and so they brought him in hunting nets so that his voice could be heard, would be heard no more on the mountains of Israel. Your mother was like a vine in your vineyard. Now look here. Look here. Just like we saw... In chapter 17, when the topmost uh, uh, branch and the sprigs were plucked off, then it became a low-spreading vine. The lion, lioness, has turned into a vineyard. Look at the demotion here. And, it, and look at the parallel. Uh, your mother was like a vine in your vineyard, planted by waters. It was fruitful and full of branches. It was abundant uh, because of abundant waters. It had strong branches for uh, scepters of rulers. And its height was raised above the clouds so that it was seen in its height and the mass of its branches. But it was plucked up in fury and cast down to the ground, and the east wind dried it up. And here's Babylon coming in and just drying it up. And it's very much like what we saw in chapter 17, dried up by the east wind. A strong branch was torn off so that it withered and fire consumed it. And now it is planted in the wilderness. It's no longer in its land. It's living over in Babylon with its eyes put out in a dry and thirsty land, as opposed to a well-watered land of chapter 17. And fire has gone out from its branch, it has also consumed its shoot and its fruit, so that there is not a strong branch, a scepter to rule. Now that's a lament for the crash of the house of David. In, in Jeremiah 22, about verse 30, um, Jehoiakim was written, or Jeconiah, Jehoiakim, Jeconiah, so one and the same, write this man down childless. It was the end of the house of David. Amos said in Amos 9, verse 11, that in the latter days they're going to restore the fallen house of David. Acts 15, verse 15 and following, the house of David had to be restored so the Gentiles could be brought in. That's what Peter and the, and the apostles were preaching. Matthew 3, verse 3, the voice of one crying in the wilderness. And so we have this picture of the collapse of the Davidic line. It was for the purpose in the days of Ezekiel to wean the people from their hope that they might be restored, to look to the future. And then we have these uh, voices in Matthew and in Acts of showing the fulfillment of what Ezekiel was talking about. I hope you'll turn tune in next soon as we carry on with chapters uh, 20 and 21. Uh, this is Rod MacArthur saying so long until next week. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of Yahweh are right, and the righteous will walk in them, but transgressors will stumble in them. For the past hour, you've been listening to Probing the Prophets with Rod MacArthur. Stay tuned each Friday from 11 a.m. Central until noon for Probing the Prophets with Rod MacArthur, right here on Fulfill Radio, a voice you can trust. <laughs>